Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. As you're seated, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 12th chapter, Mark 12. If you are using the Bibles here in the auditorium, in the chairs, it's on page 713, the passage we will be looking at this morning, page 713. What do you think is the most important thing in the Christian life? If you had to identify one issue that was preeminent, that was the main thing in the life of a believer, that would, implement, that would impact all other areas, what would that be? And what would you consider to be the, the biggest goal of the Christian life? Or to state it another way, if you and I were rightly to apply this, that it would motivate every other area of our life. It would animate our lives. You know, it would change how we, we respond to other people, how we, we love our spouse, how we serve in the church, that we would be more kind, more patient, more gentle, more generous, that every area of our life would be touched. What would you think would be that area? That is, in essence, the question that Jesus answers in Mark chapter 12. The question that was asked was a good question, but the, the impetus, the motivation behind it was a little less than noble and, frankly, focused on the regulation of behavior rather than the relationship. What Jesus does, though, is emphasize the relationship and the positive aspect, and in doing so, clarifies the core issue in the life of the believer. That's what I want us to consider this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first commandment of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, none dared question him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would better understand what it means to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would apply your truth personally and practically, and that in loving you properly, we'd also love others properly. We pray that we would learn from this passage and apply it personally for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Over the next several weeks, I would like us to look at the Ten Commandments. It's interesting because 71% of Americans regard the Bible as the Word of God, and 55% hold to a high view that the Bible is without error. 78% of Americans favor publicly displaying the Ten Commandments, but only 14% can name the Ten Commandments. In fact, according to USA Today, a poll that they did, 60% could not name half of them. And that poll was conducted back in 2007. I doubt that number has gone up. I wonder how many people even know where to find them. But without looking, how many could you name? You know, we, we understand the importance of them, but often it's difficult to really bring that to mind. And what I want us to see and, and un, kind of take an overview from this passage this morning is that the Ten Commandments instruct you in how to personally demonstrate love for God and love for others. That's what Jesus has done in answering this, this question that was posed to him. Because the most important thing in the Christian life is to love the Lord properly that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. None of us do it fully and practically as we should. But imagine the problems that would disappear if we did. Imagine how it would change our interactions, first of all with the Lord and our trust for him, and then with others if we truly understood this. That we would fully and faithfully apply that. And this is the question that Jesus has answered. I want us to see several things from this passage this morning. First of all, I want us to consider the question of the priority uh, concerning the law. The context, and we've read this, in, this discussion in Mark chapter 12, but the same account is given in Matthew chapter 22. The question posed is an excellent question, even though the, the motives behind the inquiry were, were, as I mentioned earlier, less than noble. We find that in Matthew's gospel, that, that what is actually taking place is they're trying to trap Jesus. You know, not every question is, is asked in a way that is noble. And, and sometimes to try to get to answers, we, we try to have to figure out how to do that. About 30 years ago, I was taking an 11-week counseling course with some other pastor friends, and it entailed us getting together. We would actually leave Sunday night after church. We would drive about five hours to a different state, check into a hotel. Then uh, the Monday morning, we would attend sessions all day and then drive back in the evening. And we were doing this for 11 weeks. And in the course of this class, there were some areas and topics that came up, and one of them, it was a small group of us, so it was uh, very interactive, and there was one area in particular that we really wanted to, to kind of get more of the thinking, the, the background of those that were teaching in this area and what they thought. But we also knew it was an area where they, they got asked a lot of questions that were rather hostile. And we knew that the first problem was going to be that as soon as you start to broach the topic, the wall is going to go up. 
It's like we're not asking it from that standpoint. We really want to understand. And so I still remember as we were traveling, the discussion say, okay, how do we, what is the first question we need to ask and then follow up so we can finally get to where we want to go? Now, it was not an intent to trap, but it was to try to peel back the layers. What is happening here is really an intent to trap. Matthew's gospel reveals that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, that this, this was not a sincere question-answer session. In fact, in Matthew 22, verse 15, it says, they plotted to entangle him with his talk. And, and so they've asked several questions, and I just find that statement amazing. To stop and realize they have the Son of God there doing a Q&A. I mean, what would you want to ask? The, the life issues, the life questions, the, the, the theological debates, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to trick him. It just shows that there, there was no heart for the truth. And so when you read it, and we find it both here in Mark and in, in Matthew, that the first question that the Pharisees ask is about taxation. We see that in verses 16 through 22 here, that, and, or in Matthew and in Mark, it's, it's verses... 13 through 17, they're, they're asking, should we pay taxes? And, and Jesus answers them wisely. You render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things that belong to God, you give to God. It's like, okay, we can't trick him with that one. And so then the, the Sadducees step in. They decide they will ask a question. They're going to ask a question about the resurrection, which is interesting because the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. But that's their point of questioning. And, and so they ask about a man who marries a woman and then he dies and the, the brother marries her. And, and the Laverite marriage that we talked about when we considered the, uh, the story of Ruth. And they say, you know, there, she has seven husbands, all these brothers and, and no kids. And then in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And, and Jesus' answer is just, he just stuns them. He says, your problem is you don't know the scriptures. Now, these are religious teachers. And he actually, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They also rejected a lot of the Old Testament, but they accepted the first five books. And so Jesus answers them from the first five books. He says, you don't even know the scripture, you do accept. He says, you err not knowing the Bible and not knowing the power of God. And, and so they are shut down. And now this scribe comes forward. He's a Pharisee. He's an expert in the law. Sometimes we, we refer to him as a lawyer, but not in the terms that we think, but an expert in digging into the Mosaic law. And he approaches Christ, and, and Mark's gospel of, uh, recounts his question from the standpoint of the person asking it. Matthew brings it from the perspective of what the Pharisees are trying to do. And so I've, I've had us come to this passage because I want us to look at it from his perspective. And his question is, what is the first commandment? Now, he's not trying to remember. I'm, 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 I know there's ten. I can't, you know, help get me started. That's not what he's asking. It was a debate saying, which is the priority? On what commandment does the law rest? That's his question. If, if we're going to start building, what is the foundation? Or if we were to look at from the other perspective, from the umbrella, what is the one from which all the others flow? What peg do we put in the wall and we can hang the rest of the law upon that? 
Now, this was a theological hot topic of the day. I mean, the, the rabbis would debate this. And understanding there were 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. There were 248 positive, 365 negative. I think that ends, adds up to 613. And they're trying to say, how do we take these 613 commands and come up with the one that is the foundation? So that was the question. I mean, can you imagine going to rabbinical school and saying, you know, I want to write a thesis paper on the greatest commandment? Yeah, I, I think your rabbi teachers would say, good luck with that. Well, probably not good luck. They'd say, shalom. Um, you'll need it. Because how are you going to take these? So the, it's a question of prioritization. What is, what is the support? And Jesus answers it, and he answers it by quoting Scripture. I mean, how are they going to argue with that? He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, they had put mind. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind. Jesus brings them both together. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when we read this, we find all four of those being mentioned. And, and what we see is that it's dealing with not the behavior, but a relationship. God desires complete commitment from those who follow him. That you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Exodus chapter 20, where we first find the Ten Commandments listed, the chapter begins by stating, and God spoke all these words, saying, this is the word of God. These commandments are God's word. And God delivered them audibly to Moses and then later written, they're written by, Mo, by God on these tablets of stone. But in, in Exodus 20, it's revealing God's relationship with Israel, his redemptive work, because he, it be, goes on to say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That God is seeking our complete commitment, heart, soul, mind, and strength, for a relationship. You know, most religions of the world are about doing something. That I do things to please God, to, to appease a deity. What we understand as Christians is it's done. Jesus said it is finished. That we're, we're in a relationship when we have trusted Him. And if we miss this point, then the rest won't matter. That's why this really is foundational. That if we miss the first point, the greatest commandment, fulfilling the rest of it isn't going to matter. It's like, it's like in sports, if you don't touch first base, the run's not going to count. You can go to second, you can touch, I can love my neighbor as myself, but if I don't love God first, it doesn't count. And so this is the primary point. This statement sums up will be, what will be expounded in the Ten Commandments. The first tablet, how to love God properly. The second tablet, how to love our neighbor properly. The vertical and then the horizontal. And Jesus starts with this and says, this is the first and greatest commandment. So how does God's law help us properly love God? 
with all of our being. How, how does this apply? And I want us to understand there are several purposes of the Mosaic Law that are, that are helpful for our understanding. And so while we're looking at this passage, I'm, I'm giving you the introduction of where we're going to be going in coming weeks. And I want us to consider, secondly, the, the purpose of the law. There are a number of things that the law did. And, and we find these laid out. They're spelled out. The first one is it reveals the nature, the character, and the will of God. There are several passages, but I'll give you a couple of verses. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and the rest and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will. So the law reveals the will of God, being instructed out of the law. God, God's will is revealed in the commandments. In Romans 3.21, it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the Old Testament tells us, and the law in particular, uh, tells us of the righteousness of God, his character, his nature, what he would desire. See, if God didn't reveal himself and we were left to ourselves, we wouldn't get it right. When we look around, we, we see that. What the Bible tells us, what the Ten Commandments tell us is, number one is God is unique, so have no other gods. God is spirit, so no graven images. And when people do not retain God in their knowledge, as Romans 1 tells us, then they invent all sorts of ways of worshiping and gods in their own eyes. So in ancient Greek mythology, they created gods with human vices. Last Sunday evening, I shared pictures of our, our trip to Hong Kong and Singapore and, and people who were worshiping in Buddhist temples and Hindu temples and very sincere. And, and, and the sadness of that, seeing men in business suits bowing down before this graven image, offering oranges to Buddha that Buddha's not going to eat. There, and, and as uh, talking with Pastor James, he said, you know, we, you, you talk about and you read about meat offered to idols. He said, we deal with that all the time. Why? Because people are worshiping God in their own image. They're seeking to do something to appease a deity, to make their life better, to bring peace, and, and somehow hoping to reach nirvana or whatever, whatever they're seeking to pursue in their relationship. You know, it's interesting, I saw a poll recently that was conducted, it was actually conducted about five years ago. It was on the importance of the Ten Commandments in our American society, and they, they broke it down by the various generations. The silent generation had the highest view of the importance of the various commandments. The, the baby boomers were not far behind that. And, and Generation X was similar on the commandments that spoke of how to treat other people. But when it came to the commandments about worshiping God, there was a pretty steep nosedive. And when it came to the millennials, they ranked lowest of all in their view of the Ten Commandments. Now, 92% still said, you shall not murder. I'm concerned about the other eight. But what was interesting was not that they rejected the position, they rejected the authority. So it's not that the other eight were in favor of murder. They just didn't want a deity telling them it was wrong. That no God could dictate an unchanging law. 
And so even in the horizontal commandments that, that we would speak of, of, of our relationship with others, of, of those, they, they wanted to do it for themselves. Speaking of our neighbor, and it, that it wasn't because of God's character. And it's the idea that there's not absolute truth in their minds. And yet there is. God's law is like the law of gravity. Violated and there are consequences. And you don't have to believe it, but it will happen. And yet that's the culture in which we live. And even the horizontal commandments tell us something about God. God is just, therefore you shall not steal. God is authentic. He was genuine. He's truthful. So don't bear false witness. That each one is going to reveal God. So understanding that it reveals the nature character of God, but secondly, we recognize the sinfulness of humans. The law has a way of doing that. And Romans 7 tells us, what shall we say then? The law, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known the covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. The the idea here is that our personal nature is to resist authority. Our sin nature, it it goes on in in verse 8 and says, But sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, that's not saying that, that the law is what created sin. No, it's saying it's what alivens it. It's human nature to resist authority. If, if we're told not to do something, what do we want to do? We want to do it. The problem is not the law. The problem is humanity. The problem is our sinfulness. And God's law reveals the animosity toward the law and toward God. You know, our, our sinfulness is unmasked by prohibitions. I mean, that's why we talk about reverse psychology. What does that mean? Tell somebody not to do what you want them to do because their sinful nature is going to resist it. And we all have that bent. You know, if it says wet paint, don't touch. I want to know if it's still wet. <laughs> I want to touch. <laughs> You know, it's, it's just kind of in our nature. And, and what it's saying is sin was dormant, but the law is what animates it. Well, if we're going to love God properly, we have to see the defilement and deceitfulness of our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to think we can come on our own merit. Well, as long as I keep the Ten Commandments, I'll be doing fine. Yes, but do we? And understanding the challenges here. The third thing, though, I want us to see is that, that the law restrains evil. There is an aspect of keeping it down. So 1 Timothy 1 says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, for insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for murderers of father and murderers of mother, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. It's like this is not an exhaustive list. But it's saying the law has a way of keeping control. In December of 2017, Christian Tyler's cousin and his best friend, TJ, was shot to death in front of TJ's four-year-old daughter. Christian said this, 
I could have gone out and killed the guy who killed TJ, but when TJ's life was taken, I realized all at once that there truly is a battle between good and evil in the world. And it was time for me to stop wandering through life and pick a side. And that's what brought me back to the Ten Commandments, to the original roadmap I can follow so that I know I can trust myself that I am doing the right thing. He went on and said, the Ten Commandments give me and the larger society unnecessary discipline. That there is a guidance. We sang of the blessing on our nation and praying for that. And in law and discipline. Our, our nation today rejects both at so many levels. But understanding that it's necessary, there is a positive societal impact brought by recognizing God's law and by government applying law biblically and practically. I mean, how much better off would our schools be today if they restored the Ten Commandments instead of trying to redefine what it means to be a boy or a girl or figure out new pronouns? Let's go back to God's law and understand that and, and see what God has said and would say and move away from the fantasy perversions of our culture. You know, we hear often, well, you can't legislate morality. Of course you can. That's what laws do. Now, you can't change a heart through legislation. But legislation tells us what a society views as moral and immoral. So we have laws against murder. Why? Because it's immoral. Of course we do that. Now, the point is the heart doesn't change. It's that restraint of evil. But that's the purpose, and that's why God ordained government. Read Romans 13. That government is supposed to be a terror to those who do evil and encourage those who do right. And the problem is, in our culture, too many times people who are trying to do right are the ones who are persecuted. And those who do evil aren't afraid. Well, government has lost its role. It's lost its place. But God ordains government, and government officials will answer to God. He's the Supreme Court, not the one in Washington. And they, too, will give answer. So the law does this. It restrains evil. The fourth thing it does is it confines sinners. And particularly for the Jewish nation, in Galatians chapter 3, it says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith had come, we are no longer under the tutor, for you all are all sons of God through faith in Christ. And understanding then that this aspect, that there is a confining of sinners. Do you realize that eight of the Ten Commandments are negative? Well, why is that? I mean, we don't like negativity in our culture because the human heart spontaneously goes against God's will and God's character. So there's that confinement of individual sinners and the prohibitions counter our tendency to sin and life without Christ. Sin is a heart issue. And so, as I've already said, legislation will not change a heart, but it can confine sinners. Do I really want to pay the penalty for this? So the law was a guardian to keep sinners boxed in. That's the idea here, under guard, until Christ came. It actually protected Israel. 
as they moved into the promised land and they're surrounded by these pagan nations with all of their idolatry, their immorality, and, and so it protected them. It was a tutor. Now, ultimately, salvation is in Christ alone. The law was kind of a help class, tutoring to bring sinners to Christ, revealing who God was and protecting And so by grace alone, through faith alone, believers become the children of God alone, the sons of God, as it says in this passage. And so that was a a fourth purpose. A fifth one is it communicates justification and judgment. That God is just. In Romans 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth might be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What is it telling us? Well, there are people who think, if I just keep the Ten Commandments, then I'll be fine, right? If I do that, God, you know, my good works will outweigh my bad works. God will be satisfied with me. Well, no, that's not it. But do they? I mean, there's an antagonistic attitude in our culture toward God and his law. I mean, morality is mocked. Truthfulness is ridiculed. Promoting covetousness is a significant industry through advertising. Don't be satisfied with what you have. Want something else. And God's name is used flippantly. Even among Christians, unfortunately, it's a punctuation mark at times. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for he will not hold them guiltless. Well, when God's judgment comes, what it shows is that the law shows that God is fair. He is just and his just judgment is fair. And so the law is a teaching tool in that. The next one is it defines the appropriate expressions of love. And that's what we're seeing now coming back to Mark. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And then there's a second commandment. Like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. By the way, we hear a lot in this culture, and I've, I've heard preachers say, well, first you have to love yourself before you can other, love others. No, God, God's, God's son said there is no other commandment. There's two The Bible assumes we love ourselves. No man yet ever hated his own flesh, it tells us in Ephesians. We nourish it, we cherish it. And so understanding that there's there's two laws here. And the Ten Commandments provide concise statements of how to love God and then love other people. And and that was also a debate among the, the religious leaders of the time. Who is my neighbor? You know, how can I limit this? You know, okay, the people living next to me in that culture, and, and Jesus, you remember the story, uses the Samaritan and uses that to tell them who their neighbor is. So what we see is the first command summarizes the first tablet of the ten, that our duty to love God, the second com- command summarizes the second half. How do we love others? But the emphasis through all of this is on love. It's like two pegs on the wall. And the second one connects to the first. And the rest of the law hangs from those. And, and this double love comprehends righteousness. So, so just to give you the review of these six points, these are the things that we're looking at that the law does, that there's a purpose. 
So as we get into the Ten Commandments, understand there was a purpose here. That it it gives us the nature of God. It tells us His will. It, It reveals our sinfulness and helps restrain evil and confine sinners while communicating God's justice and judgment, but ultimately that we would show love properly. Now, one other area, and because we have a seminary, sometimes this comes up. I want us to consider what is the place of the law for Christians? And, and you may never have thought about this, but this is a big debate in theological circles. And I, I, my position is I'm a dispensationalist. That means, there are several points, but one, that we interpret Scripture literally, recognizing the historical, grammatical, literary types and cultural context, all of that. Um, so we interpret poetry as poetry. But there's a a, a focus on the literal interpretation. Secondly, that God's glory is God's ultimate purpose. That is the purpose of life. And the third one, and this is where the discussion comes in the context of what we're considering, is that I believe there's a clear distinction between Israel and the church. That, That the church is not interchangeable, that we're not Israel in the New Testament. Now, I say that because some that hold to the covenantal position will say, well, then we, as me as a dispensationalist, has no, have no right in how I'm viewing the law then to why do we only meet on, you know, the seventh day of the week or one day in seven rather than every 40 days or maybe just a couple of times a year like Israel would come to the temple. They don't understand the position. I would also say sometimes you hear the law divided into the ceremonial, the religious worship, the societal, the civic aspect, and the moral law. And that's helpful in kind of breaking down where things fall. It's illustrative, it's functional, but we don't find it in Scripture. And James 2.10 says if you violate one point of the law, you're guilty of all. So there was a unity there. And and Exodus 19.3 says that the law is specifically given to Israel. So how does it apply to us as Christians? If I'm going to take several weeks and talk about the Ten Commandments, what is the application? I believe that the law, and particularly the Ten Commandments, does have a place for Christians today. But there are are things that help us in our understanding. Number one, it has to be based in the unchanging character of God. So you shall not murder is based in the fact that humans are made in the image of God. And, and so it's not simply the Ten Commandments. This is, this is the character of God. Truthfulness is based in the nature of God. God is truth. And the law reveals, as we said, the nature, the character, and the will of God. So it's helpful in this way. A second one, it's rooted in the created order. The prohibition against adultery goes back to God's design for marriage. And I would say as well, when sin is prohibited, it calls for abstaining from all the other things that would be in that same category. The various types of fornication, including, as Jesus clarified, the heart issues of mental lust. That if you lust after a person, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so the whole list, there's a list of perversions in the Old Testament law that are not repeated in the New Testament, but they are still prohibited by this. So while the New Testament doesn't mention incest, bestiality, and a bunch of other things, They're prohibited because of the created order and the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. A third way that we look at it is, is it repeated in the New Testament? And we find that nine of the ten commands are repeated. In fact, Jesus takes it to the heart issue, beyond just the behavior. You shall not hate, because if you hate somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. 
Several years ago, I was talking to somebody and we were looking at, they brought up the aspect, well, Jesus said, if you lust after a person, you've committed adultery. He said, so if I've lusted, I might as well go ahead and commit adultery. I said, yeah, and if you hate somebody, you might as well kill him. He said, I get your point. Yeah, the heart issue is different than the action. There are consequences. Remember the purpose of law is to restrain sinners? That was somebody who needed to understand that part of law. Because there, but we have to understand that what Jesus is saying is we're, we're seeking to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we have to go back beyond just the behavior to the relationship. And I, I mentioned that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated. The, the other one is adjusted in the New Testament, and that's the fourth point. And that is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So we don't meet on the seventh day, we meet on the first day. Well, it was adjusted in the New Testament. So as a dispensationalist, yes, we meet one day in seven, but we do it on the first day of the week. And so to understand that, that there really is this application, that the principle of worshiping God regularly remains, though the day was adjusted. And so recognizing this, and then finally, that there's no major conflict in current dispensation in this age of grace, in the church age. You know, there are were, were a number of the elements of the law that were simply for Israel. So I've already mentioned the question of the Sadducees and what we considered from Ruth on the, the Leverite marriage that if a, a, a man dies and doesn't have children, then his brother would step in. Well, that, that was a con, that's a conflict with our dispensation. That was specifically for Israel and what was taking place there. And, and recognizing that we are not under the law for justification, for sanctification, but it still has a purpose. And we need to be instructed by it. So all of that to say, okay, what are, what are the practical applications for us today? And I want us to note again what Jesus says. Fourthly here, the consideration of the practical application. Look at verse 30. He said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, or as the, the Sadducee or the scribe is repeating, all your understanding, all the soul with all the strength. What is he saying? Don't compartmentalize. Don't love God in my read the Bible app, but ignore him in your entertainment app. Don't love him in your Bible study app, but neglect him in how you talk to your children or how you talk to your spouse that we can't compartmentalize. So let me ask you some questions. Do you delight in the Lord as much as something else or someone else? Is that our delight? Do we love Him with all of our heart? See, the heart is the core of our being. It's the seat of our personality. Do we have that desire? Secondly, do you desire fellowship with the Lord in prayer, in Bible reading? Do you love Him with your soul? Or is it kind of a checkbox? The soul is our emotions, our, our conscious self-consciousness. Do you desire that fellowship? What about your thoughts? Number three, do you, your thoughts go toward him? Do you love him with your mind, your understanding? When, 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 you, when you have time to just reflect, do you think about the Lord? Or do we only think when we come together on Sunday and we're looking into God's word and even then our minds wander? Do, does our understanding in that mental endeavor, the rational facilities, do we love God? Do we, do we say as we sing, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. That by His love and power, 
fulfilling, that it would, that it would motivate what I do, what I say. Number four, do you strive to do what he desires? Do you love him with your strength? That's, that is our action. That is our power. Our, our active powers as a person. And notice that with every one of these, it says, Jesus said, you will do it with all. All your heart, all your understanding, all your soul. So if this is true, then there's going to be a decreasing love for the things of this world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because if you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Or in our scripture reading this, this morning from James, as, as that very in-your-face statement that if we love the world, we're adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred with God? It's the opposite of what we're being told. That we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because obedience flows out of love, not the law. That is the point of what Jesus is saying. That it's not the check boxes, oh, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you're good. Now, one of the most familiar verses in the New Testament after John 3.16 is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. Those pieces go together. When we're called according to His purpose, when we belong to Him, there will be that love. And that love then will motivate our desires, our affections. And when we love Him, all things work together for our good and for His glory that we would become like Jesus Christ. Even when we struggle. Even when we stumble. Because none of us get this right completely. All of us struggle in this. In fact, I think there's a great example in John 21. You know, John 21 is an interesting chapter because it really seems like the gospel ends with chapter 20. These things are written that you might know that, you know, and and there's much more that could be written, but these reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you get this by-the-way story. And it's Jesus dealing with Peter. Peter and six other disciples go back to Galilee. They leave Jerusalem area, they go back to Galilee, and Peter organizes a fishing trip. And, and so they go out there, there's these seven of them go fishing, they fish all night and they catch nothing. And if you're familiar with the story, in the morning Jesus is standing on the shore and he asks a question that every fisherman hates to hear when they've not caught anything. Did you catch anything? You don't want to, you don't want to be asked that. Now he asked it, children, do you have any food? And, and, of course, the answer is no. And, and, you know, fishermen don't like that. I mean, you hear, you hear stories of, of people who go fishing, don't catch anything, so they stop by the, the market and pick up fresh fish on the way home. So they don't want to come home empty-handed. It's like the guy who stopped, he went, went in, he told the, the person working, he said, I, I need a, several fresh lake trout. And the butcher who knew him well said, by the way, your wife called, she wants chicken instead. So, <laughs> Is, is we, we just, you don't want to hear that you didn't catch, you don't want to be asked, did I catch anything? And so Jesus says, children, do you have any food? No. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. And I, and I just wonder what Peter's thinking at that point. He's the fisherman. And I wonder if he's saying, you know, I know this lake, I know fishing, you stick with preaching, I'll take care of the fishing. But they obey. 
and they get a catch, a multitude of fish, they can't even pull it into the boat. There's so many, they can't bring them in. They have to bring the boat, dragging it ashore. And Peter realizes it's the Lord. He jumps in the water. He swims to shore. And then there's another scene. And Jesus in that scene asks an even more uncomfortable question than did you catch anything? After they eat, Jesus turns and he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Ouch. And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that, and he changes the word, you know that I have affection for you. And Jesus says, feed my, my lambs. And then Jesus asks him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he says again, yes, Lord, you know that I have affection for you. Tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you have affection for me? And Peter was grieved. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I have affection for you. Feed my sheep. So what does it take to feed a sheep? This is after Peter denied the Lord three times. And if you remember that story, he had said, well, these other guys might deny you, I never will. Peter, do you love me more than these? I don't know that it was a comparison with them, but I'm sure he understood. Where are you going to put your love in comparison to others? And now the Lord is restoring him three times. Even though there are different Greek words, the, the true deep commitment, selfless love, and Peter changes it. He says, I'm just not sure I'm there yet. But every time the Lord commissions him, what does it take to, to feed his sheep? What does Peter have to have? He has to, first of all, love the shepherd. If he's going to feed the sheep, he has to love the shepherd first. Peter, do you love me? I also think that story is very encouraging because Jesus is talking to a disciple, an apostle, one of those who was called and had failed. That even the incomplete, insincere love, as Peter is now humbled, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Peter said, I'm not sure I can go to that level of love, but Lord, I, I care about you. And God is still willing to use him. You know, what if the Lord posed that question to you this morning? Do you love me? How would, how would we respond? Do you love me? What would you say? Remember how Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. How would we respond to that question? Let me take you back to Mark chapter 12. Look at verse 32 with me. Look at verse 32, and we'll bring this to a conclusion and the application here. The scribe says to him, well said, teacher. Good job. Nice answer. Truthful, clear. The scribe was impressed. He understood the volitional love was superior to religious ritual. That's what he says. It's better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And he got it. And, and, and then in verse 34, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. That is, he understood it. 
He, he could think, he grasped the truth intellectually, he understood the significance of what Jesus said, and notice what Jesus says to him now. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' concluding statement to this scribe. What is Jesus communicating? Well, the man realized the importance He got the priority of the commandment. He he had come a long way from where other scribes might be. He was near, but he wasn't there. His understanding had now moved beyond rule-keeping, which was characteristic of the Pharisees. I mean, Pharisees were great at rule-keeping. They added to the 613 but he still didn't have a relationship. You're not far. You're not there yet. Beyond acknowledging the accuracy of the statement, the scribe needed to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He needed to come to God through the love of God that was revealed in God sending his Son. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You can read the rest of Mark. You can read the rest of Matthew. You will not find whether or not he ever trusted Christ. I hope he did. But how he responds to the statement here in verse 34 determined where he is today in eternity. But what about you? Are you near but not there? Would Jesus say that you are not far from the kingdom of God? What makes the difference? That personal trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. It's not knowing the facts. It's having surrendered your heart and trusting in Christ alone as your Savior. Are you there today? If not, we would love to be able to show you from God's Word how you can be through Christ alone. Let's pray.